if we want to be happy long term, if we want to actually have a chance to ensure that our lives turn out the way that we want, we have to be proactive about it. I mean, COVID has put everybody back on their heels for the past 18 months. And largely, we've been forced to be reactive. And your business is evolving and you have to reshape it. Like, I get it. Agility is good. But also being reactive and continually adapting all the time to external stimuli, it only goes so far. I think that long-term thinking is a way of fighting back. I think it's a reclamation. And I think it's a way of putting our stake in the ground and saying, we are gonna call this pitch. We're not gonna be bossed around by circumstance forever. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question Does long term thinking matter? in a world where the rules feel like they change on a daily basis. Now, I seem to be talking a lot about reinvention on the podcast at the moment, and that hasn't been deliberate, but it feels like a universal theme that's underpinning a lot of everyone's thinking right now. In fact, just this morning, I was reading a quote on social media on my phone, and it said, in the rush to return back to normal, use this time to consider which parts of normal are worth rushing back to. Now, for many of us, myself very much included, the pandemic has been a good opportunity to look at how future-proof our lives and our business models actually are and what we want to change. But if I'm really honest, with hindsight, many of the challenges I experienced last year at a business level could have been at least cushioned, if not avoided, with better long-term thinking on my part. If I had listened to the nudges of change when they were just that, nudges, If I'd looked at what I needed to create in the future versus the seeds I was so busy planting right now. Essentially, just adjusting the timeline of my thinking from a one-year horizon towards a five or even better 10-year vantage point. And that's what this episode is about. Being willing to step away from the next fire that's burning, the next shiny object that everybody else seems to have, and really ask ourselves, what do I need to start working on now in order to have the influence or be where I want to be 10 years from now. About two years ago, I started to notice that one of my all-time favorite operators and as of today, third time guest on this podcast was starting to change a few things. You know, at first it wasn't much, it was a few emails about webinars and online courses and yet, and I can't think of a better way to say this, I could just feel her flexing some new muscles. And I remember thinking at the time, she's she's building a product ecosystem. I wonder why. Because on paper, there was no reason for her to change course. She was a thinker's top 50, multiple best-selling author, highly paid speaking work all over the world, huge consulting deals. You, you get the picture. And yet, she was gradually, slowly but surely pivoting. 
And little did I know at the time, and the story you're about to hear today, is that she had looked 10 years into the future and realized that she was going to need another plan. Not as it turned out for the reasons that we now know and the reasons of COVID-19 and everything we've experienced recently. She didn't see that coming. But what she saw coming nonetheless meant that she was going to need to change direction. More on that later. Dory Clark has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards. Dory, as a consultant and keynote speaker, teaches executive education at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. And she is also the author of Entrepreneurial You, Amazing Book, Reinventing You and Stand Out which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. magazine. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, Clark has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review. She consults and speaks for clients, including Google, Microsoft, the World Bank. I could just keep going on and on with this incredible woman's accolades. But you will see the full impressiveness of her very soon. Having watched Dory reimagine her business and life so successfully since our last conversation, I reached out to her and asked her to come back on the podcast for a third time and share what she'd been learning on the journey. Days before we were due to record, her latest book arrived on my desk. Its title, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And that pretty much sets the scene for our deep dive today in which we discuss why long-term thinking is more important than ever in a short-term world, even though it doesn't feel that way. What keeps us in short-term reaction loops, and a clue on this one, usually involves sacrificing our long-term goals at the altar of, I'm too busy to take a breath, and I'll think about that when I have more time. The vital importance of creating white space to consciously recalibrate and rethink the road that we're on, and why we all need to learn the art of saying no in order to start saying yes to the bigger picture. Why, when we get that white space, the first question we ask should never be, what do I want to do, which is the question we often focus on, but instead, who do I want to become? The difference between patience and strategic patience now is someone who has very little of the former. This was good news for me. Dory's experience getting her first book published and what that taught her about the importance of measuring yourself against a 10 rather than a one-year horizon. And why everything takes longer than we want it to. Everything. And how to keep the faith when the road gets messy, including my new mantra, courtesy of Dory, when it comes to raising your influence. If a hundred people reject your work, that's a pretty clear message. But one, two or ten, you haven't even got started yet. What I would love you to listen out for today are the breadcrumbs. Progress rarely comes with a fanfare, right? And the huge leaps are often far and few between and way far and way fewer between than we want them to be. A more useful strategy is to pay attention to the micro signals, the small and often quiet indicators that you're on the right track. It might be a thank you email or a win that might just not feel that huge, but is just enough to get you to take the next step. Experiment by experiment, one breadcrumb at a time. It's not sexy, I know, but it's the surest long-term road to success that I know of. And because she is a rock star, we're going to try something new today. 
If you love this episode enough to share it on social media, Dory has also offered a free PDF self-assessment tool to help you find your breakthrough idea as an influencer. What's a breakthrough idea, I hear you ask? Well, it's exactly that. It's the idea that will break through the noise and get people's attention. The idea that combines the best of your expertise and packages up in such a way that it's going to cut through and start attracting that next level opportunities to you. Notice the word attracting rather than chasing. It's also the one you're going to want to work on as you start thinking more long term. Believe me, it is a seriously amazing tool. So just jump onto Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. Share this episode with the hashtag Inside Influence Podcast. So that's hashtag Inside Influence Podcast and we will make sure that it comes your way. Also, don't forget that if you want to keep up to date with this podcast or start putting some of these ideas into practice, my newsletter Influence Insider covers one bite-sized tool, strategy or mindset shift per week all on the topic of building a more influential life. Hop onto my website, juliemasters.com, to become an insider. For now, sit back, grab a pen and a cup of coffee and enjoy one of the smartest people I know and a great friend of this podcast, Dory Clark. Welcome to the podcast again, Dory Clark. Hey, Julie. Good to be here. Thanks. Hey, it's so good to have you back. So good to have you back. This is our third time, I think. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. I know. We've got a history now. We do. We do. We do. Well, so you would know that I usually kick off with the same question over and over again. I'm a big fan of running social experiments and using the podcast as an excuse. So the question that I'm kicking off with at the moment is, what's the one idea thought or could even be a fact that is having the most influence on you right now that's that's caught your attention because I know for you you are always on the hunt and so it's going to be something good well the thing the thing that I have that I became obsessed with during COVID and have largely stayed obsessed with is scenario planning I have I, I was just I was upset with myself that I didn't actually predict COVID, which maybe is being a little too harsh because I feel like- it sounds like a really high bar yeah, to have for yourself. I guess so. I mean, it seems like, yeah, national governments didn't really do much better than I did, but oh well. But I I just, I feel like I really didn't see it coming. And I was, I was just kind of glib about it because I'm like, oh, I've seen this before. I, you know, I saw SARS, I saw swine flu. It's going to be like, oh, everybody's whining. And it's like, oh, so scary. And then nothing happens. And I was totally convinced that that was going to be the case. And of course, that was not the case. And so I really uh, wanted to try to correct my error rate. And so I started to do a lot of reading about scenario planning and how to sort of map out potential futures and things like that. And so the interesting thing that I found, Julie, I will share this with you, is I... I had only been kind of moderately interested in scenario planning before because I thought, okay, yeah, that's nice. You think about different futures, but then like, wh what good does that do? But, but here is the point. It turns out that under the multiple scenarios that you map out, let's call it three, let's call it five, whatever it is, odds are the, the steps that you could take to mitigate against one of those potential futures, they often overlap. The same thing that you can do that makes you more resilient against future A might also make you more resilient against future D. And so 
it's it's not going to be perfect, but if you can actually undertake a particular activity that will make you stronger and better in let's call it three out of five potential scenarios, that's actually a really good investment and a really smart thing to do. And so it can help guide you uh, in terms of, of actual things that you really can do to mitigate against future risks. That would, that would seem to be perfectly true the more I think about it. You know, if, if I look at potential scenarios, you know, what if I get sick? What if something happens to a member of my family? What would my work need to look like then? What if the economy crashes? What would my, you know, what would my work need to look like then? But you're right. The strategies would be remarkably similar yes. across all those scenarios. And that is something that I found out kind of by luck during COVID because what I discovered is that I had been operationalizing, you know, I was not certainly prepared for like emotionally for the COVID isolation thing, but I had been preparing because I was keenly aware. I had a, a business where I did a lot of keynote speaking, you know, you can, you know, that world. And uh, so I was traveling around a lot and I, I knew that it was uh, risky. It was risky because the two the two scenarios that I had been implicitly or explicitly explicitly envisioning were that there would either be a recession and no one would want to have conferences anymore, which you know has happened plenty of times, or that I would somehow get sick and not be able to do the traveling that I had previously done or the traveling that I had committed to. And so I had really been laying the groundwork since 2014 to over-index, first to explore and then to hopefully over-index on online course creation, because I thought that is the kind of, you know, stay at home, like passive income kind of thing that I need to protect against those two eventualities. And guess what? It turns out it also happened to, uh, to mitigate against COVID, even though I didn't know that that was what was coming. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today, that future proofing. And what amazed me was I actually said to my team, I was like, I'd love to get Dory. Can we get Dory back on the podcast again? And I had no idea that you had a new book coming out at the time. I, I think you were just finishing writing it. And when the book arrived, when it landed in my inbox, I was like, this is the exact topic. This is the exact topic that I wanted to talk to you about because I have been watching you invent and reinvent and you know we're going to be talking about this language place bets over the past few years and I have been observing and admiring how you were placing all these bets trying all these different things building yourself an ecosystem I didn't know why no one saw a pandemic coming I didn't know the realizations that you had had but I was noticing that you were shifting your business model shifting your focus to build something new and I wanted to talk to you about your experiences doing that so we'll We'll get to that, but I wanted to start where the book starts, and that was with a 3.30 a.m. alarm call. Can you talk to me about that moment and what it sparked for you? Yeah, absolutely. So in the long game, I begin with a scene <laughs> from my life, which was kind of kind of a depressing moment. Um, I had I woke up kind of with a start in a panic and uh, you know it's those those moments where you're like wait what what's going on what's happening and then you realize like oh oh this isn't bad this is just my alarm right I wanted my alarm to go off wait why did I want my alarm to go off and you have to piece it all together and the reason was that I this particular day before COVID I had a 5:30 flight that I had to catch at the airport in New York and I you know was rushing to to get to get everything ready for that and i flew to california had an entire day of meetings in california 
um, you know, which is a, a six hour flight and uh, just went to bed and collapsed, had a second day of meetings, flew to Atlanta, had more meetings. And at the end of all of it, I just, I thought, oh, you know, why, why am I doing this to myself? And it, it all, it all worked well that week. It all came off like miraculously, you know, all the flights were on time and, you know, I didn't get sick and it, it, it worked, you know, I could stuff it in, but I realized that it was very structurally unsound <laughs> and that that's great language. It, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Thank you. And it just, it couldn't, it couldn't really hold forever. And uh, I realized that I was making choices, whether I was conscious or not to create this structure and that probably if I was smart, that I would need to begin reevaluating it. You know, that's one of the interesting intersections between your world and mine. I had a, a similar moment. So when I read that as the first pages of your books, I had a business with offices, US, um, Australia, people based all over the world. And I was flying all over the world. And I remember this one night in Indianapolis when I couldn't sleep. I was so jet lagged. I was so tired. There was so, I had so many places that I was supposed to be. And I was just wandering the streets of Indianapolis at like 3 a.m. in the morning. And I found there was a church and there was these steps. I still remember there was these steps leading up to the church. And I sat, it wasn't a religious moment for me, but I sat on these steps. And I remember thinking at the time, take a photo of yourself. And so I have this awful, blurry, miserable selfie still on my phone. And the thinking at the time, my half adult brain was thinking, take a photo of yourself right now because you need to remember to do something about this. Wow. You need to remember how this feels so you change it. Ooh, I love that. Wow. Was it a turning point, Julie? Did you actually? It was a complete, it was absolutely one of the most pivotal turning points of my life, that particular moment. And even now, you know, you're talking seven or eight years later, even now I find it very hard to look at that photo. Wow. Because I remember it that vividly. So, you know, you've had this nagging feeling, and I think we've all had this nagging feeling that this has got to, this is coming to an end. I'm not at the end yet, but this has got to come to an end in one way, shape, or form. And either I consciously do it, or I will be forced to do it, or, you know, some might say subconsciously, I will start to self-sabotage from this point, because somewhere in me, I've decided that this can't go on. Um, that The journey that that puts you on it felt like a very, from the book, it felt like a very deliberate journey not to react to the situation, not to throw your hands up in the air and go, that's it, I quit, I'm done, I'm canceling everything, I'm going home, but more a, a conscious choice to design what you wanted your life to look like from that point. Is is that true? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I ultimately, writing the long game, you know, this is a book about long-term thinking, strategic thinking. Fundamentally to me, it's a book about being proactive. I think that if we want to be happy long-term, if we want to actually have a chance to ensure that our lives turn out the way that we want, we have to be proactive about it. I mean, COVID has put everybody back on their heels for the past 18 months, and largely we've been forced to be reactive because, you know, you don't really have a choice when uh, there's public health issues and government is telling you to do different things and your business is evolving and you have to reshape it. Like, I get it. Agility is good. Uh, we are not dissing agility. 
but also being reactive and continually adapting uh, all the time to external stimuli, it only goes so far and we can only stand it so long. I think that long-term thinking is a way of fighting back. I think it's a reclamation and I think it's a way of putting our stake in the ground and saying, we're actually going to head somewhere. We are going to call this pitch and we're not going to be bossed around by circumstance forever. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, ever that things go perfectly according to plan, but it means that you can set your direction and work to make things be directionally correct uh, so that you have a, at least a better chance of, uh, of ending where you want to. And I think that's definitely one of the questions that COVID has raised and you put it beautifully in your book, which is you said about going to write this book, COVID hit. And the question became, you know, does long-term thinking even matter in a world, you know, where in the short term, anything can happen to change the rules? What, what would your answer be to that question now? Well, I, I would say yes. <laughs> I think, I think, I think it does. And I, I think that for me, long-term thinking is ultimately about understanding and appreciating that the things that are most valuable, ultimately, whatever that is for, for you, whatever someone's individual goals are, whether it's a career goal or a personal goal, the things that are most worthwhile usually do take longer than we want them to. They usually are harder or more complicated. That's what makes them valuable is that it's something that not everybody can attain. But when you do, it's so incredibly powerful and meaningful. And the part that has frustrated me so often, it, whether I'm observing coaching clients or, you know, I run an online community called Recognized Expert that, that has, you know, 600 plus people that have been through it. So I've had a lot of opportunity to get a longitudinal perspective um, from, from a fairly large group of people to see how they have approached building their platform, getting their ideas out there. And the, the thing that is most painful for me is when smart, talented people give up too soon on ideas that actually are really good ideas, but it's just that, you know, they take longer than they think. And so I wanted to write the long game as a way of almost helping people frame it so that it's easier for them to get through those dark periods where it becomes really impossible in those moments to tell whether something's not working or whether something is not working yet and to hopefully give them the kind of structure and framework and encouragement that they need so that they can keep going to get to that destination. When you say give up too soon, I just want to pick up on that for a second because, you know, you're very clear in the book that this is not what do I want to happen next year necessarily. And you tell this beautiful story about the royal family, I think, in Monaco who brought in a consultant and they said, you know, this we're talking lifetime generational legacies here. If you can shift some things for this particular generation. For most of us, it lives somewhere in between, like a year and a generational legacy. What, what timeline do you recommend to think about when you're starting on this field of long-term thinking? Well, I think there's a few answers to it. For me personally, uh, and you know, this is, this is not necessarily a prescription for everyone, but for me personally, I like to think in 10-year horizons. And I'll tell you actually why. Part of why I love thinking in 10-year horizons, to me it's so much better than thinking in like a three to five-year horizon, is that when you have a 10-year horizon, 
you don't have to know how you're going to do it. Mm. <laughs> There's something mm. so comforting about that. How good that. does that feel? <laughs> you could just say, I, you know, I want to do this thing. And people say, well, how are you going to do it? It's like, you know what? I don't know. I don't, I don't freaking need to know because all you need to know is the next step. Maybe the next step is I'll read a book. Maybe the next step is I'll talk to a guy. But by doing the next step, you learn what the next step is after that. And I promise you by, by year five, you will have a much clearer view of what it takes to succeed in year 10. I've, I've said that this particular thing on the podcast so many times that if I look over the trajectory of my career, any moment that has made me take a quantum leap, you know, like one of those big moments that takes you forward has always been something that had nothing to do with a strategy of mine. But it's because I was executing on a, on a strategy that another door I could never have foreseen opened. Another person picked up the phone I didn't even know existed. So it's always at a tangent. You know, the thing you're going for, the opportunities that come, they're the tangents. You can't plan for those. That's right. Yeah, so true. So let's talk about why we don't for a second, because I think that that's important. You know, we should. Why don't we? The first one that you talk about in the book is I'll think in the long term when I can take a breath. And I, I recognize that one really, really well. Um, why is that a myth? The, the myth of taking a breath? Yes. Well, obviously, we all know we're busy, right? And that and that is not wrong. We are all busy. So, so this is not... Um, it's it's it may be it may be a little bit of an excuse, but it's also not untrue. So we have to recognize that um, there's crazy stats that I have in the book. You know, one one of them, uh, which which is one of my favorites, just in a horrifying sense, is that the average professional has 62 meetings per month. I mean, you wonder like why is it I can't get anything done? Well, 62 meetings per month. It sounds so horrifying, but if you actually think about it, what it breaks down to is two to three meetings per week workday which of course is perfectly normal. Most professionals do in fact have that, you know, we, we don't like add it up that way, but it's like, oh my God, that's a lot. If you did the maths on that, you know, if you, if you correlated that just in a spreadsheet very quickly, if you, if you had the time, which apparently we don't, um, you know, if you correlated meetings with outcomes, if you could actually look at those 63 and then could you identify 63 outcomes or even half or even a quarter or maybe even five? Exactly. Exactly. It's, I mean, yeah, you subject it to rigorous analysis and you realize like, oh, wow, that's a lot of wasted time. So we got the meetings, we got the emails, that is all true. But the part that was especially fascinating for me is I dug deeper into this question of why is it we don't really make time for strategic thinking is there were two essentially hidden reasons. The first one is that research, notably by Sylvia Baletza from Columbia Business School, has shown that there is a clear, at least in most Western societies, there's a clear status associated with busyness. That if you review, you know, oh, how are you doing? Oh, crazy busy. And people say this as like a badge of honor. And it is because it it is essentially a way of telegraphing to people i'm in demand i'm popular the world can't do without me and if we actually give that up if we were if we were to operationalize the thing we claim we want which is to be less busy it would actually put that status in jeopardy at least in our own minds so that's one piece the second piece is that frankly busyness is a form of avoidance because if we have hard questions to ask like is this the right job for me? <laughs> is this the right career for me? Or even just, oh my God, I need to do X. I don't really know where to start with X. 
well, you know what? Just keep doing that thing you're already doing. And even if it's not the right thing, it'll distract you enough that you don't have to ask the hard questions. And it's a good story, right? And I mean, goodness knows I'm an expert at it. I would, I would, I would get to that, that thing, but I've got so much on right now. You know, there's so many things right now. You know, I've got young children, I've got a business, I've got a podcast. Who's got the time? Who's got the time for this stuff? When the truth is that, and this is, you know, no denying that everybody's got a lot on their plate, but the truth is, and we're going to talk about this, that there would be periods that I could create if I, if I committed myself to doing so. That's right. And I believe that's very true for my own life. I'm not speaking for anybody else's, but I believe it's very true for my own. So if the, if the opposite of busy is white space, which is what you talk about in the book, let's talk about white space. And that white space, my definition in my head being creating conscious time to reevaluate, to rethink the trajectory of where you're going and what you want to create. What does white space look like for you? Let's take after that 3.30 a.m. alarm clock call. What, what does white space look like when we create it? Yeah. So the good news about white space is it can, I mean, ultimately it can look the way we want, but sometimes if we, you know, we, we do have a lot of agency in this, but it's helpful to have examples because many of us just have no idea. We're like, I don't even know what I would do. I don't even know where I would start. So I'll give you a couple of examples from my own life. So one is that I am a, a big fan in terms of my own scheduling. Now, you know, caveat when I'm doing a book launch, for instance, all this is out the window because all I'm doing is like promotion all the time, but under more normal circumstances where there's not this like crazy looming deadline, I like, and I've done this for years, to structure my calendar according to some principles that Paul Graham elucidated, who is the founder of Y Combinator, a Silicon Valley accelerator. And he he talked about this, he sort of broke this down for like different jobs, different classes of people. But what I've discovered is certainly when you're an entrepreneur, but I would actually argue for almost any professional, you kind of need to have both yourself. And so he talks about manager time and maker time. And so for managers, right, it's, it's all about like meeting, meeting, call, call, because you have to move things forward. For makers, you need a lot of white space. You need unscheduled time to do your deep work, whether that's writing a book or coding or whatever it is. And so I actually try to separate it out on days. So I again, under more normal circumstances, we'll have manager days and maker days. And on the ma on the manager days, I mean, it's back to back. It's crazy. It's, you know, all, all the stuff. But the reason I do it, and it's so frenetic and not necessarily that fun, is so that on the maker days, I have nothing, I have nothing planned. And of course, the key is you don't blow that time with cat videos. You do your thing and you can actually make some progress. I love you said. I love the fact that you said blow your, your time with cat videos. I was, <laughs> I was thinking the opposite there, which you know I've I've done this in my own calendar. Um, it's clear in my calendar. My team know it's clear in my calendar, and I am the worst. Uh, you know, it's always the case. You know, you put a you put a boundary up, and the universe will just kind of poke it for a while just to see. And I found when I did it, every single human being that I needed to talk to or that needed to talk to me, they were only ever available on that day. That's you know? funny. And so you, You've got to hold it. You know, it's one thing to do it, but you've got to hold That's it. That's right. And the universe will eventually move around you, but you've got to you've got to keep the line. What's the first question that you ask in that white space? And we're talking about, you know, big white spaces here, big reconsidering, big th long-term thinking. Is there a question that you start with? Mm. Well, one of the questions that I like to start with 
is, and and this this is sort of taking it to uh, a higher level, is what kind of a person do I want to be? Because so often we start with tactics. We start with like, well, what is the thing I want to do? What is the thing I want to do in the next week or the next year? Okay, well, you know, I mean, that's not a terrible question to ask. But if we sort of start with first principles, it's what kind of person do I want to be? And then what do I need to to do? <laughs> what are the actions in order to get there? And so uh, in the long game, I actually tell the story of a, a friend of mine named Alyssa Cohn. And she ended up, she's an executive coach. This is not her world. She signed up for an improv beatbox freestyle rap class. And she took this rap class and she almost dropped out because she, she goes for the first day and it's like, you know, a bunch of guys who are like, you know, wearing hoodies and, and baseball caps and they're all 30 years younger than her. And they're like, practically professional rappers they're so good and she's like oh my god i've never rapped i only like sing along to the hamilton soundtrack and she was so you know like ah. and she almost quit and she emailed the instructor and was like i don't know i don't know that this is the right thing for me and he wrote back and it was very powerful for her because he said look the goal is not to turn you into a rapper the goal is to help you become a more creative and expressive person and she thought, oh, right, that actually was my goal, wasn't it? <laughs> and she realized, all right, well, I've got I've to pony up here. I've got to sit through this because becoming a more creative and expressive person means that I might, in fact, be a really bad rapper, but I am going to take this rap class. I've, I've also got a friend who, whenever she sees something that she wants in the world, it might be somebody who has the life or the lifestyle that she wants, or it might be a home that she wants. Whenever she sees something rather than, you know, ask herself the question, how can I get that? She asks the question, who, who would I need to become? Yeah. Who would I need to become for that to be true for me? Which it's such, such a powerful question. Um, there's another phrase that you use in the book, which I loved because again, it's just beautiful. You have such beautiful language. Um, that, you know, a lot of us take this kind of all or nothing approach to white space. Again, if I want white space, you know, I have to quit everything and suddenly I go part time or, you know, go sit on an island, you know, in silence, meditate for a month. And you have this phrase, you have to place your bets, but don't bet more than you can afford. And i.e. don't quit everything that you're doing that's working either in your life or your business. What does what does not betting more than you can afford look like? Well, ultimately, you know, most profession, most adult professionals have some kind of responsibilities. And that is, again, you know, it's like simultaneously, we say, yes, that is true. You are correct. And also, a lot of times, frankly, people use it as an excuse for complete inaction, because they say, well, I oh, I have these responsibilities, therefore, I could never Therefore, I couldn't possibly, because the frame in their head is that, you know, oh, you're going to change careers? Well, obviously, that means I'm going to completely quit my job and just plunge off a cliff. And it's like, well, yeah, you're right. Don't do that. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of places there's, in between. There's space in between those two places. Yes. And so, you know, don't bet more than you can afford. Uh, there's, uh, there's ways to test things out and to, to ensure that we're heading in the right direction. I mean, I certainly want one of the principles that I talk about in the long game is 
again, you know, I'm, I'm just a fan of applying business concepts in general to our own lives, which I think even when we practice them in our day job, we sometimes fail to. And one of them is uh, something very popular, of course, in Silicon Valley, which is the, uh, you know, the sort of lean startup methodology, which, which basically says, look, before you go whole hog on anything, just make sure people want it. And so, you know, like try things nights, try things weekends. I have a whole section in the book about the importance of, of so-called 20% time, which Google advocates, um, which is allocating a fifth of your time to experimental endeavors so that you can actually test out whether you're interested in something, whether the world is interested in something. And if they are, God bless, go deep. But if you try it out, you know, spending 20% of your time on something and doesn't work, that is not going to break anyone. And it is what I would call a fairly safe way to experiment. That the whole concept of 20% time just and white space brings me on to one of my favorite topics at the moment, which is the art of saying no. And when I read that in your book, I was like, hallelujah, because about a year or so ago, I realized that I was shocking at saying no and I actually started collecting I, on a word document on my computer I actually started collecting different ways of saying no. oh nice just you know when you have a podcast when you put yourself out there in the world you're going to get a lot of no's and so I would start to go that's a really good way of saying no and put it in my word document um so if we want to create this we have to learn how to say no what are some of your favorite ways to say no or what are some of the ways that you have found you know maintain a relationship but still hold the creator time that you've built? Yeah. Well, I think actually in, in a lot of ways, we make this too difficult on ourselves. Like uh, whether the amount of angst that we put into the question of, oh my gosh, do I say no? How do I say no? We're like tearing ourselves up inside. The truth is in most instances, the other person often doesn't care that much. I mean, you know, I, I organize like dinner gatherings and brunches and whatever. Am I going to be traumatized if someone says no? Like, no, I'm not. It's okay. Like, I'd like them to be there if they're not like, all right, well, maybe the next one, you know, whatever. It's not a huge deal. And so I actually love your strategy, Julie, because having, having scripts, having a kind of compendium enables it to be a cognitively easier process where you just realize, like, oh, okay, it's not that I have to like invent the perfect purple prose from scratch to use with this person. I'm just going to borrow this template and put it in here. Really all you need, I mean, the part that gets disrespectful to people is when you either don't answer them or when you just drag it out and you take three weeks to get back to them about whatever and they're trying to make plans. If you can actually answer swiftly, that is often the cleanest and most respectful thing that you can do. And so when you have a prefabricated list of no's, which you know you you can borrow, anyone can borrow when you've received no's. When you, when you get you when you get a message that you like, you're like, oh, that's well done. Keep it, copy it, and borrow it and use it. And that way you can deploy it without the the intense cognitive burden of having to figure out how to say no. I'm going to have to figure out a way to share my list now. Oh my God. I share think, my list with everybody. I think it's a good opt-in. You're going to get like 10,000 subscribers. That's amazing. The compendium of no. Oh, I love it. Julie's big book of no. There we go. <laughs> the next New York Times bestseller. Um, now, you, you also talk about optimizing for interesting, which, you know, again, just seemed like a beautiful form of permission to explore. What does that mean, optimizing for interesting? Absolutely. So 
optimizing for interesting is a, a concept that I talk about in the long game because I feel like there is a lot of pressure these days for people to find their passion. And people people often feel really bad. They feel terrible if they have not somehow found their passion. And even worse, they feel like they can't take any action at all because, oh, well, I have to figure out my passion first and then I'll blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? Uh, it usually doesn't fall off a tree and hit you in the head. Uh, so you might be waiting for quite a while. And so what I actually like to do with the advice to optimize for interesting is essentially just lower the bar for people because you might not know what your passion is. That's fine. You do know, I'm quite sure, what is interesting to you. You know, some people like really think math is interesting. Some people really, really don't want to spend their free time thinking about math. You know, I mean, it's like that for, for almost any topic. And so if you find something at least interesting, move in that direction, do a little more, take a, take a class, take a workshop, read a book, what, you know, do an informational interview. And if it still seems interesting, well, guess what? Do more. And it's through the doing that we can figure out much closer what direction we should be pursuing. Tell me about your decision to write a Broadway show. This was another one of those moments when I heard about that and I was like, you know, you go, you go for a lot of different reasons. One is this fear that I think that we have of getting out of our lane, of being seen to get out of our lane. What if it, you know, diminishes my authority? What if it diminishes my time? What if people question my commitment? Any one of those, but you just you grab those and run with it and it does nothing but strengthen you in, in, you know, from my perspective. Thank you. Talk to me about that decision and hello, Pussy Cat. <laughs> yes. So we have a handsome cat visitor right now. That's, oh, hello. It's a, it's a cat whiteout. <laughs> it is a cat whiteout. Yeah. It's a very pretty cat whiteout. Thank you. Amazing. Uh, so yes, I decided, so speaking of 10 year plans, this is a 10 year plan in action. I decided in 2016 that my 10 year plan was going to be that I would write a musical that ended up on Broadway. And so I have been assiduously pursuing this for the past decade. And I started out literally pretty much knowing nothing about how to do this. I had, I, you know, I, I had not written, uh, some didn't you Google songs. it? I, didn't you? I did. I Googled it. I was, I was, I was trying to figure out how do you write a musical? And I was, you know, just trying to like look for books on Amazon. I was trying to see, you know, is there a blog somewhere where I can find out? I had no idea about how to do it, but I slowly began taking one step in front of another. And indeed, you know, half, half at the halfway mark now, I know a lot more. So with my 10-year plan, I had no idea how I was going to get a show on Broadway. But what I did know and what I strongly believe is that if you have a long enough runway, you can accomplish almost anything. And if you if you really devote yourself to something for 10 years, even you know if it's not full-time, if it's 20% time, of course you can have a show on Broadway. Of course you can achieve you know, whatever your goal is, you know, publish a novel or, uh, you know, run an Iron Man or, you know, whatever the thing is that you're after. And so five years in, I have now written a musical, which which is, you know, some, something that I had no idea about before I've completed one. I now have relationships with literally dozens of producers and people in the Broadway ecosystem. In fact, I'm convening a brunch this weekend that I think half a dozen producers are coming to. 
I, uh, I've completed a two-year training program organized by BMI, uh, the music publishing company, in writing musical theater. So I have, I have dramatically advanced my knowledge. Now, am I on Broadway yet? No, but I have five years, so I'm working on it. But that's a long way from Googling how do I write a Broadway musical. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that just that leads me on beautifully. But another thing that I have noticed following your work, you know, admiring you, talking to you, lucky enough to talk to you frequently, um, is your unique relationship with experimenting. You seem to have this incredible viewpoint when it comes to putting things out. They're putting your name to something that may or may not work. Did it start out that way? Have you always felt that way? Or is it some? Is it a muscle you've had to, to build? I think some of these things are muscles. I mean, it, I am not going to lie. In the early days, especially of uh, being in the, the musical theater training program that I did, the BMI program, there were people who, you know, I was in this program and I was like, oh, good, it's a training program. I'll get trained. Well, there were literally people in the program who had multiple people who had master's degrees in musical theater. And they're like starting the program w w alongside me who literally knows nothing. And you get paired up with people. That's the whole premise of musical theater is you're, you know, the lyricist matches with the composer. And so it is just people who had exponentially more knowledge than I did. And frankly, as an adult, I mean, this is the problem. We, we are no longer used to being terrible at things as an adult you're usually fairly competent at most of the things you do. And the things that you're terrible at, usually you're either not going to do them or it's it's something so far removed from your goals or your identity. You're just like, well, I'll try scuba diving, but you know, okay. You know, like no one's expecting you to, uh, to, to know how to do it if you've never done it. But this w was, you know, actually just really humiliating. I mean, you're, you're in this program you're, and you don't know how to do it. And these people, I mean, they're kind of like looking at you like, duh, like what's your problem? And, uh, and just having, having to deal with that, having to endure that every week, literally for two years, uh, is extremely trying on one's ego. Uh, and so the whole time I just had to remind myself, I'm like, okay, Dory, you are successful in other endeavors and your self-esteem does not reside here. It is okay. <laughs> and I think, you know, you and you don't, in do those that. situations, you're either, you're going to level up or you're going to quit, right? Yeah, like yeah. you're, you're going to do one of two things. And, you know, you talk a lot in the book about this, this phrase of keeping the faith, trying to keep the faith. And what I loved about the book was it's basically, it's basically a chronicle of a lot of things that you have failed at or have had miniature failures along the way to a massive win. But if you had quit at any one of those miniature failures, you would have never got to the massive win. And you talk a lot about strategic patience. So what is strategic patience? And for those of us who, you know, don't have a great relationship with the word patience, how is it different to the word patience? Yes. Well, I appreciate the distinction and you're, you're exactly right. I am not a fan of patience either. This has never, patience has never been my homeboy. And so I, I decided that I would invent my own category, which I call strategic patience because regular garden variety patience, I just, bleh, I can't, I can't really take it partly because of its connotation of passivity, right? Because when you, when people tell you, oh, just be patient, really what they mean is just like, sit back 
good things will happen. Like it's, it's just, it's so blithe and so ignorant. I feel like, like you kind of want to punch them. And so for me though, it, it is true. Like you do ultimately have to reconcile yourself to the fact that like, okay, right. It is true that things take longer than you want. Like that is, that is a thing. And so if you are going to deal with that and be a successful person, you need to somehow have a strategy for it. And so strategic patience is not about sitting back and wishing that good things will happen. Strategic patience is about creating a hypothesis, monitoring that hypothesis, and just being aware, all right, this is going to take a while. And I am going to look at the signs. I'm going to look for the raindrops of progress. And by raindrops, I mean just the little tiny subtle signs that a lot of people might miss um, so that you can judge if you are heading in the right direction and if so, to keep persevering. You know, that actually reminds me of a, of a question that I've been asking myself a lot over the past kind of year to two years. And that is, you know, how, how to tell the difference between those moments in your life where you are literally swimming against the tide you know, you've, you've picked the wrong beach, the wrong ocean, the wrong wave, and you are going to exhaust yourself in this endeavor and then get spat back out again. And so you should really just, you know, keep hold of your energy, float for a while and wait for a different wave, look for a different wave or perseverance, or you keep swimming, you keep plugging away one stroke after another. How do you in your life tell the difference between those two moments? Yeah, this is the million dollar question, right? because nobody wants to be the idiot if it's pursuing something way too long and it's like come they, on they end up getting rescued by a, a you know a lifeguard and thrown out onto the beach yeah yeah exactly so i would i would say there's actually three things there's three ways that we can be smart about determining whether something is a fruitless endeavor or whether this is actually something that will pay off we just have to keep at it a little a little longer and you know longer than we want to longer than perhaps other people are so the first uh just going back to what i was saying before is looking for those raindrops of progress because i think for a lot of people they are so fixated on the ultimate goal they miss it when there are signs of momentum you know they're so busy about like well i'm going to i'm going to get a new york times bestseller or oh i'm going to get on oprah's show or whatever that almost anything else besides that just seems insignificant and it's the truth is for a long time for a very long time things that actually are signs of progress they seem they seem so minor they're almost like stupid it's like well you're getting more linkedin requests from strangers like you might not even think of that as a thing, but that's actually a sign that people are paying attention to you. That's actually a sign that you're building a following. Like, note that. Like, oh, well, you know, some random podcaster invited me on their show. Well, you know what? That actually means that people are beginning to think that you have something to say. So don't dismiss it if it's not Tim Ferriss. So I, I think that's important. That's number one. Number two is you need to scope out what you can actually expect in terms of the timing that something is going to take. Most people never bother to do this, and it astonishes me. Now, it's not to say that your pace and your progress is going to be exactly the same as other people's. It's probably not. But also, it's probably not going to be a magnitude of 10x different from other people's, right? Like, if something normally takes someone two years, are you going to do it in two months? I mean, 
Maybe, but probably not. You know, maybe you do it in 18 months or maybe you do it in 22 months or 28 months. And so knowing what other what it, what it has taken for other people to accomplish that thing in the past is very useful information. And then the third thing is having a circle of trusted friends around you. And not just trusted friends who love you, although that is important, but trusted friends who are knowledgeable in your field so that they can actually give you guidance, knowledgeable, salient guidance about whether your ideas are good, whether you are making appropriate progress, et cetera. Those th three things can really help you. Can you tell the story of getting your first book published? I mean, here you are, you're just launching your, your fourth book, you're, you're way down the road on, I don't know if it's this 10-year horizon or you're on the next 10-year horizon now. But just talk about that first journey because I think, you know, that's a journey that, you know, most of us are before that point even. Yeah, yeah. So getting my first book published was uh, was definitely a, a bit of an ordeal. And I, you know, I can say this happily from the position where I'm now coming out with my fourth, but it really seemed kind of impossible for a long time. In 2009, that was when I got serious about the idea of writing my book. So I did it obviously completely wrong. And I wrote three different book proposals. I was like, well, one of these is going to work. So I spent the first half of the year writing three different book proposals. Well, guess what? None of them ended up selling all because they, the publishers basically were like, well, you're not famous. And I was like, oh God, okay. Well, I hadn't counted on that. I thought, I thought you wrote a book to get famous, but no, that is not how it works. Uh, so I'm like, fine, okay, I'll get famous. And so I- <laughs> I'll get famous out of spite. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I totally didn't want to start blogging. I'm like, oh God, that sounds like a drag. But I started blogging and, uh, and just like plugging away, plugging away. And so it took me a, about another year and a half or two years, but I ultimately um, really just pushed and persisted my way into starting to write for a number of publications. Uh, first, it was the Huffington Post, which was very cool at the time. And the second uh, was I, I was able to break into writing for Harvard Business Review. And finally, then uh, I ended up writing a writing an article, writing a blog post that ended up kind you know kind of striking a chord and so they ended up when this part was total luck uh, a piece that they had been expecting kind of dropped out at the last minute and so because my piece had been popular they said well can you turn it into can you expand it and turn it into a magazine piece of course they gave me a week to do it over christmas uh which is you know how opportunities present themselves at like super super inopportune times uh but i got it done and when the magazine piece came out I was thankfully uh, approached by multiple literary agents, which was handy because my previous agent had fired me because she was not able to sell any of my proposals. And that is how I was able to write my first book, Reinventing You. And again, you know, that just points out that, that common theme again, that when we, when we have a goal, when we have a long-term goal, what we think we need to do to get that goal achieved is not actually the thing that's going to get that goal achieved. It's us showing up for those strategies that opens the other doors that creates whatever momentum we need to actually get it done. Um, there's, there's this thing that I keep hearing at the moment and I think, you know, COVID's got a lot to do with it. It's this sensation of, you know, others are advancing and I'm not. I see other people, you know, I see all the blog posts, I see all the, the social media and, 
it feels like people who have been doing this for less time than me, who are less experienced than me, who know less than me, and I'm hearing a lot from, from clients and colleagues at the moment, they seem to be so much further ahead than me. How, can you just speak to that? I know you coach a lot of people and I'm sure you hear the same thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly social the combination of social media and COVID has not been helpful. Um, one, of, one of my favorite quotes from The Long Game, uh, I, I came across this, uh, this quote, which I included from a guy named H.L. Mencken, who about 100 years ago was a sort of well-known satirist. And he said that, tr you know, true wealth, true success is making $100 more a year than your brother-in-law does. <laughs> and I, I thought, ah, that's, that's it, right? But the problem is that today, everyone's your brother-in-law. <laughs> it's, it's not just the person like next door to you, it's like everyone, and you have to compare yourself to everyone. So it's incredibly stressful. And of course, you know, we, we've all heard, right, you know, just, oh, but, you know, you're comparing your actual life to their success reel and, you know, like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But still, and it's incredibly frustrating to feel like other people are progressing faster or they have it figured out and we don't. And so this is where we really have to, uh, we really have to get comfortable persevering. I mean, I have a coda to the long game where I talk about essentially the character traits that you need to have in order to be able to play the long game. And ultimately, you know, resilience is one, of course, but another is independence because it can feel so hard and so lonely sometimes when you are on a path and, it, and you're in that period where it hasn't popped yet. It's not, you're not successful yet. And frankly, everyone thinks you're a loser because nothing is happening. And even if you were convinced that it's going to work and it's going to happen, the rest of the world doesn't see it. You're not even 100% sure. I, uh, I have an article that just came out in the Harvard Business Review based on the long game. And I tell the story about um, the difference between Cezanne and Picasso. And Picasso was successful really early on. He got famous in his 20s. He was famous his whole life. You know, yay for him, right? As every, everyone thought he was like a genius his whole life. Uh, meanwhile, Cezanne, who, you know, history has, has decided like, okay, he's a good painter. People, people think Cezanne uh, is important. In fact, Picasso himself uh, was inspired by Cezanne. He didn't start to see any success whatsoever until he was in his late 40s. And up until that point, he, he just wasn't even sure. Like, am I no good? Like, I think I'm doing something interesting, but nobody else seems to think so. Eh? And it's, it's like that for a lot of us, you know, whether you're a painter, whether you're a, whether you're a writer, whether you're a lawyer, um, there can be huge amounts of self-doubt and it, it really takes strength of character to push through that. And I, I want to commend the people that do because that's that's how we get to the other side that's how we get to the good stuff but it is not easy i feel like there's also almost seasons that we that we don't pay attention to you know when you're starting out you get a few wins you're full of confidence you know that's your that's your spring you've got stuff to do you know you're putting things out there in the world and then you hit inevitably an autumn when things you know stuff starts to die and then you hit a winter and then when you're in your winter you kind of turn around to look at people in their spring and go, oh, my goodness, look at them. They're making such quick progress. But you're in a season and there's more seasons to come after that. But just you need to remember that that's not your season at the moment. That's right. 
What are you working on right now that's taking longer than you want it to? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know, I, I will say that, you know, we all, we all write the books that we need. Right. And so I, in terms of publicizing this book, for instance, I know that, you know, the mantra that I am abiding by is just, you know, you do all you can do and, and that's it. You know, you leave, you leave it on the field and then you feel proud of yourself because I can control the process. I cannot control the outcome. And so I think every author would like their book to be the, you know, the crazy runaway bestseller, right? I mean, there's, there's literally a handful of books that, you know, like, uh, like Stephen Covey's seven habits, right? It has sold 40 million copies. I mean, that is an unfathomable number. It's a very good book. It is a really good book. I mean, God bless. He deserves it. But like, whoa. <laughs> and so I. And easier to do at that time when there were so few books as well, you know, different age now. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think everybody, you know, when you're launching a book, you're like, oh, maybe mine can do that. And inevitably, even if this book is like crazy, crazy successful, which I hope it will be, it's probably not actually going to sell 40 million books. And so just understanding and reconciling yourself. One of the themes that I talk about in the book is like, as humans, we're all looking for the magic bullet. We're all looking for like, oh, this is the home run. There is almost never a home run. And we have to just say, you know what? Okay, I'm going to get back on the field tomorrow. Hmm. My final question for you today, you've got, again, another beautiful quote from the book. If a hundred people reject your work, that's a pretty clear message, but one or two or 10, you haven't even gotten started. What's your one piece of advice or guidance for those who are somewhere between the number one and the number 99 rejections at this point? Yes, yes. Oh, well, I just, I want to, I want to cheer, cheer everybody on because I think that there, so often people, people kind of get punished by, you know, in terms of societal disapprobation if they're not immediately successful. You know, everybody loves a hero, but after a while people begin to look at you a little bit askance if it's if it's not working out. And I think that there is something really noble about pushing forward. I think that people need to be cheered on and you know, it's it's easy to be uh to be critical of um of other folks, but just the fact that they're doing it, you know, honestly, even when someone writes a bad book, like, I think it's great they did it. I am cheering them on for writing that book because, you know, my my early articles were not the best. I hope they weren't bad, but I'm way better now and I can see that I'm way better now. And so I I think that it is it is important and it is brave for people to do it. I think that sometimes people sharing their ideas... Um, it's it's easy for some people to be critics and say, oh, well, that's like a narcissistic thing to do. And I know Australia, of course, is the the land of the tall poppies. Uh, but you know, it's not it's not narcissism. It's bravery, and it, it takes bravery to be bad. Whether you're bad at musical theater and you get better, you're bad at writing and you get better. And uh, and so I think they deserve extra claps and extra credit. It takes bravery to be bad. I'm going to put that on the other list that I keep, which is things to tattoo on my forehead. Dory, 
thank you so much for your time again today for coming back on i'm gonna be hitting you up again next year but all the best all the best with the book and thank you for the ideas you put out there julie thank you so much it's always a treat talking with you i'll just mention for folks that are interested in diving into their own strategic thinking that if uh, they want to go even deeper, I have a free long game strategic thinking self-assessment. Uh, it's available mm. for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. And thank you so much for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.